Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is Countering Violent Extremism, an Industry, which addresses the CVE approach to reducing terrorist and other extremist activity. To address that topic, we have two distinguished analysts who have devoted a considerable amount of research to assessing the effectiveness of CVE as a way to reduce violent political behavior. First, let me introduce Lydia Wilson, who is a research fellow at the Center for the Resolution of Intractable Conflict at the University of Oxford, as well as a senior fellow here at the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center. Dr. Wilson is also an editor for the Cambridge Literary Review and is working on a book about violent extremism with the working title, The Banality of Terror. Thank you so much for being with us all the way from the UK. It's a pleasure. Next, we're fortunate to have with us Peter Romaniuk, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and at the Graduate Center uh, of CUNY. He's Director of the Center on Terrorism at John Jay and previously served as Assistant Director of the Ralph Bunch Institute. Among his um, publications is the 2015 report for the Global Center on Cooperative Security, Does CVE Work? Lessons Learned from the Global Effort to Counter Violent Extremism. We envision today's podcast as a dialogue between these two distinguished experts on countering violent extremism, and I turn it over to them now. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us, John. Uh, Lydia, it's good to be in touch again, and uh, terrific to uh, have the opportunity to, to chat uh, about this important topic uh, at this particularly interesting and challenging moment uh, in world affairs. Um, let's start at a general level. Um, what is violent extremism, uh, and where does it come from? <laughs> Starting easy, right? Uh, so there are no commonly accepted definitions of these things. I mean, violent extremism, as its name suggests, is the violence that is committed in the name of some sort of cause. That is, it's not violence for your kin or um, other sorts of, of, of motivations. This is this is an ideological or political cause. Um, and where it comes from is is. I think a little bit um, better established these days uh, than it used to be when it was named terrorism. Um, although, of course, that is hotly debated as well. Um, there are a cluster of drivers, I would say, around feelings of marginalization from society and alienation, and also around a sense of grievance or injustice about that situation in society. You think that there's something structural against you. You can't get what, where you want in life, not because you've been a bit lazy or, or something's gone wrong, not, not for a cause that you can see in your own life, but there's something structural working against you. Institutional racism or feminism stopped me getting a girlfriend or the immigrants have taken my jobs. There's something out there that you see as an injustice. Um, and there's also another um, cluster of drivers, I would say, um, around having no future. You don't feel any hope that your life is going to turn out how you want it to. Um, and add it all together, I think we could say something like that you don't feel that you have a place in the world. There's nowhere for you to belong to and there's no way for you to get what you want in life. Uh, that's really interesting. I was actually um, uh, fascinated that you um, referred to um, the idea that our knowledge of where violent extreme, where, where violent extremism comes from, uh, is better established than it previously was. Um, I mean, my general take on, on the literature and the research on 
the causes of terrorism, what we now call the drivers of violent extremism, uh, is is indeed that um, uh, there has been progress in terrorism studies and terrorism research, uh, even if, um, as your answer implies, uh, that progress reflects um, the sort of uh, identification and documentation uh, of a whole bunch of different range of factors that may or may not matter uh, in different um, uh, contexts or different cases. Uh, so would you generally share the view that there has been progress in terrorism research? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry to conflate two things, basically. Um, violent extremism, I would say, incorporates terrorism research. I was just referring to things that are older when it was called counterterrorism, I suppose, or when counterterrorism was the only activity against um, violence in the name of a cause. Terrorism studies now um, is doing all sorts of really incredible things. And there's, there's a huge overlap, like a lot of people don't even see the difference between violent extremism and terrorism. They don't see the need for this second um, concept coming coming up. I mean, the, the proponents of violent extremism would say, um, I think, <laughs> although obviously it's contested, would say that um, um, it incorp- uh, violent extremism as a concept incorporates terrorism, but goes a little bit further. It's, it's a bigger concept. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. And um, uh, certainly my own impression is, uh, and indeed my own opinion, is that the, um, uh, the, the shift from the use of the term terrorism uh, to the phrase violent extremism uh, was done for a whole range of reasons, some of them, I think, uh, certainly political, um, mm. but that the sort of analytical justification for doing so um, was to establish violent extremism as a broader concept that was perhaps more um, referential to sort of ideas, um, to, to sort of capture this um, claim uh, that um, it is that, that there's an ideological or ideational um, yeah. frameworks that um, uh, that what were previously thought of as counterterrorism policies uh, ought to be addressing. Um, and so I see certainly um, that violent extremism, uh, that terrorism, sorry, is uh, is sort of a subset of um, violent extremism. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I think Northern Ireland had a lot to do with that shift. Um, and I'd like to hear your views on that, actually, in that I think terrorism, that the name of it, you know, capturing that terror of attacks, attacks on civilian targets to create fear. Um, I think there was that emphasis in the Northern Ireland um, context of branding the IRA as criminals. You know, this wasn't anything except criminal behavior, that the violence wasn't, they didn't want to understand the causes, they wanted to condemn the the effects. Uh, and then as Northern Ireland, in fact, this is this will take us on to countering violent extremism, because Northern Ireland realized, or, you know, that the, the British authorities realized that their approaches just weren't working. Um, and they did try other things, including a move to community-based policing, a move away from strictly intelligence-led counterterrorism, you know, trying to capture the, the, the perpetrators before they manage to attack. Uh, they try to do much more community-based work, which is exactly where countering violent in- extremism as an industry came out of. Would you agree with that? Certainly. And and in my mind, actually, the, the Northern Irish case is um, uh, talked about a lot in the, the CBE literature um, with regard to the shift between, as you said, sort of community-based policing and other community-based measures uh, to draw a contrast between the kind of hard power approaches um, that were increasingly seen to be um, counterproductive uh, with more sort of soft power interventions um, that endeavoured to win hearts and minds uh, for want of a better term. Um, in that regard then, so um, do you have a, a preferred definition of the concept of countering violent extremism or um, uh, do you think that uh, uh, governments or, or non-government organisations have, have fleshed out this concept well? <laughs> They've fleshed it out so well that it has become, I would argue, more and more meaningless as time has gone on. <laughs> and from the beginning, it was huge. I mean, it incorporated 
any single activity that would strengthen a community from, um, yeah, better policing to youth empowerment and leadership programs to education, communications. And this has only expanded. And so it's basically any pro-social program you could think of. So I no longer think it's a term that's very useful. Do you agree? I, oh, no, I certainly agree. The, um, I think it's a very promiscuous term. I think <laughs> yeah. it's uh, um, covered such a broad range of not just social policy, but, um, but you know, uh, development policy when we talk about uh, international organisations and, and Western governments staging CG, CBE interventions in the developing world. Um, and then sort of whole branches of, of uh, CBE-relevant or CBE-related activities going on in, in strategic communications and in, yeah. um, uh, you know, women's rights. Uh, and I do think that there's been a bit of a backlash against CBE uh, to the extent that people that have been working in these fields for many years uh, have felt a little bit marginalised themselves, have felt a little bit sidelined as resources and um, attention uh, have been given to um, practitioners um, uh, that brand themselves um, with the CVE label uh, and are effectively going in there and, and staging similar kinds of interventions um, that others have staged in the past under a different rubric, um, uh, but with similar kinds of goals. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, full disclaimer here, I have to now confess that I have been um, um, <laughs> a recipient of CVE grants over the last few years, um, mostly in the Middle East, but also in Europe and America. Um, and so I do know this industry from the inside. And there was a terrible scramble to rebrand, in, especially after ISIS, in fact, when the budgets kind of uh, went up very suddenly, and the demand for CVE programming was was under, suddenly came hugely focused. Uh, the the impetus was coming from all sorts of donors, UN agencies, and governments. Um, and this came with an expansion of the industry and all the positive and negatives that such a quick expansion might imply. I mean, I saw so much manufactured expertise because people were doing the kind of repositioning that you describe um, in an attempt to label themselves CVE experts. Um, and, you know, in this day and age of, of easy to build websites, uh, I saw local CSOs and NGOs just publish things themselves on their own websites and then claim they were the expert and receive government grants to do um, to, to do programming or research in the field, uh, that they had no concept of the local dynamics. And yeah, a lot of CSOs, uh, you know, civil society organisations, sorry, and um, community-based organisations, they did lose out in that scramble. Uh, and it's, I mean, partly it was just too fast moving, perhaps, for, for the donors to do due diligence on their partners. Uh, partly it was people who were prepared to exploit certain systems in international organisations. You know, they were in a, a better position to take advantage of this extra money. Uh, but, yeah, a, a lot of very good people did lose out from the industry. That's certainly consistent with um, uh, with my experience. Um, I'm also interested in the extent to which the term itself uh, can be a liability. Um, yes, I think yes. one of the one of the um, uh, principal sort of findings about the effort to roll out CVE or CVE related measures uh, in the West, in Western Europe, in the UK in particular, um, is that CVE sort of the the term had this unintended consequence that uh, interventions that are you know um, that resembles other forms of social policy interventions. Um, now carry this particular label and led to um, a certain level of stigmatization yes. uh, and provided uh, the kinds of um, perverse incentives that you were just describing with regard to um, organizations at the community level um, where, you know, uh, for civil society organizations to partner with governments on CVE measures uh, implies that they agree with the government that there's a problem that needs um, to be um, uh, addressed. Um, and perhaps attracts uh, actors uh, 
um, that are looking to advance uh, their organizational interests rather than um, really serve their communities. Yes. I mean, oh, I've seen such terrible things go on. I mean, we, we probably have to track back a little because, of course, the major formative um, moments of, uh, of, of CVE as an industry were, have been the, the high-profile attacks, of course. You know, it was 9-11 that created the war on terror and that framework for countering terrorism. Um, and then in the UK, as you mentioned, um, it was our 7-7 bombings, you know, in 2005. And both of those were profoundly shocking events uh, to, the, to, to America and Britain for very different reasons. America was coming under attack from the outside, but Britain, you know, th- those bombers were homegrown. They were British. Um, and so that led to a CVE strategy that was about, um, that was, a, was domestic, it was about safeguarding issues. It was about protecting people's communities. Uh, and because it was devised in 2005, it, it was one of the earliest um, um, fully fleshed out CVE strategies, I think, uh, that was really produced. Um, it, it, it was launched in 2007. Um, and the major strand that has received an awful lot of criticism is prevent. Now, prevent is obviously prevention of violent extremism and what it was looking to do was look at vulnerable communities and um, strengthen resilience against uh, ideologies taking root but of course what you are doing is branding an entire community as one who produces terrorists and these communities aren't stupid, especially the target audience, which are the young, you know, because youth over the overwhelming demographic to join a violent extremist organization. Um, they, they're very savvy, especially with messaging. They knew that those communication strategies weren't aiming at improving their lives. They felt that it was their government already judging them as being somebody who might be a terrorist one day. And that created huge resentment. Now, to do um, the British Civil Service credit, um, they did respond to a lot of these initial huge mistakes. I mean, prevent was a top-down strategy. They realised now that was entirely wrong. All these strategies should should be community up. Um, they explicitly started with the Muslim communities because the 7-7 bombings were Al-Qaeda-linked. Um, um, And so the strategy was against homegrown Islamism, which, again, they've admitted that should not have been the case. But we didn't have far right attacks at that point. And so the picture was very different and they've responded. But of course, these sorts of pictures stick that they were anti-Muslim, however unfair that was, and um, they were... Um, making assumptions from the top down rather than working with communities. Now, they've changed both of those things. But yeah, I I think it's been a bit late to save the label CVE, certainly in this this country. That's interesting. I mean, I think that historical perspective is is really important in terms of looking back at the development of CVE as a field of of policy and practice and, um, uh, and indeed as an industry. Um, I mean, I don't mind admitting to you that um, that I thought the entrance of CVE into the counterterrorism debate was a welcome development. Um, uh, you know, these developments, I think, have their deepest origins in sort of the second half of the, the second Bush administration, at least from the from the U.S. perspective, mm, yeah. um, where there was a realization that um, the hard power measures the framed in terms of a global war on terror um, uh, after the uh, the, the terrible experience of um, the, the Iraq war, um, you know, there, there were unintended consequences that were being correctly identified um, yeah. by governments. There, there was an effort to sort of learn um, and to pivot um, and to um, think about um, soft power, deploying soft power tools uh, in a preventive context. Um, whenever I teach this stuff, actually, I always ask students, you know, think about um, the capacity of governments to um, uh, effectively uh, pass and implement policies or develop and implement policies to stop people from doing stupid things. 
um, you know, there's been some successes in the past in terms of bringing down levels of smoking or bringing down, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, safe sex campaigns and, and, mm -hmm. and stuff like this. Um, uh, but it's really difficult to, for governments to act effectively um, towards a goal of prevention, uh, let alone to do so in such a, a, a hotly politicized national security related field. Yeah, well, oh, you've covered a huge amount of ground there. Um, let me try and pick it apart a little bit. I mean, for a start, yes, this is highly politicised and we shouldn't ever let go of that. And it's politicised in, 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 in many different levels. For a start, on the domestic front, um, as, as, as someone put it to me, we have to be seen to be doing something. You know, the public need to know that the government are doing everything they can to stop the next attack. And these attacks have grown quite sharply since ISIS arose in the in the Middle East. Um, certainly in Europe, that is. Um, so there's there's that 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 first concern is to satisfy your domestic audience. But on the global level, and all of these movements are now global because that's what the reality is in the age of the internet. Um, that it, within their international relations, CVE programming doesn't come first. They're not going to sacrifice relationships with allies over CVE programming. So when the research in certain countries shows that the grievances are around things like corruption of government or, or um, an oppressive anger at, an, at the oppressive nature of a government or the oppressive police and security services, a Western ally isn't going to walk in demanding reform, even though that's what it might take to actually address the causes of violent extremism in that country. And so CVE is hampered from the very, very beginning um, because of political concerns. So the people working in the field, civil servants or the partners on the ground, they're working in a very tiny space. Um, now, what else did you cover? You said a lot of interesting things. Oh, yes, prevention, right? Absolutely, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, so this leads me on to what I've concluded after many years working in, in, in this field. Now, the more I work with and interview and hear from the young people who have either been radicalized, they remain radicalized, or they were vulnerable in some way, or, you know, they knew people, maybe they were, their sibling went to, to join a violent group. Um, the more I really wondered what was so special about violent extremism. Because exactly the same forces that take somebody to, 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 to do those extreme actions also cause a huge number of other antisocial pathways and self-destructive pathways. You know, all, all, of these, all of these stories I was hearing from these young people all over the world, they're the same stories that lead to substance abuse, gang membership, um, suicide, um, domestic violence, criminality, the list goes on. Um, this resentment against your society, the feeling of exclusion, the feeling of injustice and having no place to belong, it can lead to all sorts of different behaviours. So why are we trying to pick out violent extremism and just prevent that? Doesn't it make much, much more sense to address the driving causes and solve all these, well, not solve, we're never going to obviously eliminate problems, but reduce all these problems at once. What do you think? Is that too I much? Agree. So, I'm sorry, I agree with you very much. The, um, uh, uh, the way you put it is, is very nice. You know, what's so special about violent extremism? Uh, you know, to be honest, I think that um, uh, if we do sort of look back at research on terrorism and violent extremism in the sort of post 9-11 period, um, and if we do sort of um, share a general consensus that there has been some form of progress uh, in these fields, um, which is, you know, um, uh, you know, there are some contrarian voices uh, on that point. Um, but I do think one of the, the things that we've uh, really learned is that the drivers of, of violent extremism are indeed, as you point out, uh, drivers of other bad things too. Um, and, you know, uh, including um, conflicts generally, especially in a, a developing world context. Um, 
Uh, would you agree with that take that, you know, in terms of progress in, in understanding this phenomenon, um, we have learned that the um, causes of violence generally uh, have some kind of uh, convergence or, or bear some yeah. resemblance to each other? I would. I mean, a lot of the research is only just beginning. I'm very much welcoming uh, some recent work, although it's very preliminary, into the link between domestic violence and violent extremism. Um, we've had some work from UN Women recently and a book by Joan Smith. Um, uh, oh, yes, and Rachel Snyder. You know, a, a lot of the mass shooters in America, I can't remember the data. I think it's because the data doesn't exist, actually. I, I think I think this is a real lack. But anecdotally, you know, told through case studies, an enormous amount of people inflicted violence in their home before they went out to a school or other site of a mass shooting. Um, so Adam Lanza killed his mother first and so on. Uh, and so I think that research is a bit too preliminary to really know for sure. But when I talk to police who have to respond to all these different crime scenes, uh, they feel in their gut that there is a link. And you, I don't think you should ignore the gut of experience. Um, so, yes, I think looking at commonalities would be would be a major step forward. And governments, you know, are commissioning all this research that shows all these links but then, but the programming doesn't seem to be reacting very quickly. I mean, maybe it's just a slow-moving field, mm-hmm. or maybe it comes back to something more insidious, which is this need to be seen to be doing something. And if it's the need, that means we're kind of condemned to be wasting our money for a long time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is um, uh, the imminent risk of a, that CVE becomes a kind of uh, garbage can model of public policy, which is that it's a you know solution walking around in search of a, a problem. Um, but, but let me follow up with you on the um, uh, on the idea of drivers um, uh, and to, to perhaps prompt you on, on some of the fieldwork that you've done. Um, when you answered my uh, initial question about the, the general sort of origins of, of violent, violent extremism, uh, you referred to uh, a bunch of structural level factors. Um, and those structural level factors, uh, you know, affect a large number of people in, in different countries across the world, um, some of whom uh, end up by becoming uh, violent extremists um, uh, of different kinds. Uh, what's going on at the individual level uh, that takes these sort of broader structural factors and channels it towards a particular form of extremism. Uh, and, and if, you know, um, uh, I'm certainly interested in, in hearing sort of your uh, latest views on, on sort of the devoted actor model uh, mm-hmm. that you've written about with Scott Atran and, and other colleagues and, and perhaps would share that with the listeners. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the question that all governments want the answer to. They want to know out of a vulnerable community which are the most at risk of radicalization they want a prediction you know what kind of individuals are are more likely to take that path because it it's it it really is more than 99% of people who will never go down that path despite being in exactly the same position uh but sadly we can't do that we we can't provide such a neat profile i would say and we never will um, the, the humans are too complex. I mean, we can we can make certain claims after the fact. We can look at people who did join a violent extremist organisation and 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 collect data on all of those, and then make certain claims. But we're never going to be able to flip that in order to make predictions. You know, it's like a smoker. It's like having smokers. We know that um, smoking increases your risk of lung cancer, right? But you can't take 100 smokers and predict which ones are going to develop lung cancer and which ones are not. Um, so it's like that. It's like that kind of pathology, um, I mean, but having said that, we can say, so yes, you are specifically about the devoted actor model, and that refers to work that we have done with extremists all over the world. Um, I myself have interviewed uh, for, for that research group in Iraq and Lebanon, 
and Kosovo um, and Northern Ireland um, and other places. Um, and we do have fairly robust robust evidence to show that um, that there are two there are two elements to the model. One is fusion theory uh, developed by Bill Swan. Um, and Harvey Whitehouse, uh, which is about your commitment to a group. Now, all of us have different groups that we are members of to a greater or lesser extent. We might feel, I mean, most commonly, we're pretty committed to our families and our friends. Um, There's differing amounts of commitment to nation, ethnicity, religion, and so on. Uh, But fusion theory claims that when there's one particular identity that dominates to such an extent that you would sacrifice anyone in the other groups for the sake of that single identity. They call it being fully fused. That's when you're able to make the most extreme sacrifice. Now, Scott added to the fusion theory uh, with his his theory of sacred values. So we all have values, of course, um, but there are different levels. And Scott says that sacred values are those ones that are totally immune to material trade-off. That means you would not take anything to, to, to give up that value, to give up fighting for that value or, or to claim you don't have that value. Not only will you not take money or, or any other sort of material trade-off, you will actually be offended at the very offer. You will think that the person making that offer thinks you're the kind of person who would turn his back on his values. And it's actually an offensive question. And we see this in peace negotiations all over the world. When um, Palestinians were offered aid, generous aid, in return for renouncing the right of return of all Palestinians worldwide, they didn't just say no, they left the negotiating table. it's, It's an offensive offer once you attach money to it, you know. Um, And so the combination of holding these sacred values and being fully fused to the group uh, who who stands for these values, that's when you get the the suicide bombers, the the kamikaze fighters, the most extreme acts of self-sacrifice. And we see that in regular armies as much as in uh, terrorist groups we see that the most extreme acts of bravery are when the the soldiers are most fused with their comrades. They're not doing it for these higher-minded ideals. They're doing it for the people around them that they are fully fused to. Um, And they're sharing their common values. Excellent. I I, I really enjoy... um... Uh, reading research about the the devoted actor and and teaching on it as well, um, uh, teaching political science students about it, uh, most of whom are, of course, schooled from uh, the moment they step into a political science classroom to to think about um, the people we study and the institutions we study as being rational actors. Um, (laughs) And and the the devoted actor model uh, flips that on its head um, very nicely. Um, in terms of the research that you and your colleagues have done sort of utilising uh, this uh, approach, um, is it your understanding, for example, uh, if we look at the population of um, uh, uh, foreign terrorist fighters that uh, voluntarily um, went to Iraq and Syria um, when the uh, so-called Islamic State um, existed, uh, or if we look at other populations of extremists, um, is it your understanding that the devoted actor model uh, applies uniformly um, to the individuals within those populations or or does it apply uh, more in some cases than others or is it really um, an ideal type um, that offers uh, a means for interpretation um, uh, in contrast, for example, with other models such as a rational actor approach? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen a different amount of commitment certainly to the sacred values element of it. Um, a lot of people are pulled along by an older brother or a friend rather than commitment to the values, but end up being as devoted as any other of the fighting comrades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a working model, I would say, rather than describing everybody in an extremist group. 
And again, it's more of a description than a prescription. It doesn't predict, you know, there are, there were plenty of people, for example, in Lebanon, I remember one of the findings that the most fully fused to their sect, you know, the sectarian system in, in Lebanon, um, is, is politically, um, enforced. So the Sunnis, Shia and, um, Christians hold political power according to a very strict, um, constitution. Um, so, so, you know, sect isn't just a religious identity is what I'm trying to say. It's very real socially, economically, politically. Um, and the, the people who are most committed, um, weren't the people who are most likely Sorry, the most the people who were most committed to it as a religious label were not those who were most likely to commit violence. Mm. Um, and so it does fare it's it, it's never going to be everybody who's fully fused who's going to take that 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 extra step to violence. Um, it's perfectly possible to be extremely extremist and not go near violence. We see that in a lot of cults, for example. Mm. No, that's interesting. Um, uh, and again, it makes a, a really sharp contrast with uh, research um, that suggests that extremist groups at an organizational level uh, use ideology, uh, for example, strategically. Um, uh, and no doubt they do. Um, uh, but the assumptions that go into that kind of uh, explanation of extremist behavior uh, are really a world away from um, uh, from the kinds of arguments, uh, the kinds of argument that you're making with regards to the devoted actor model. Um, those kinds of assumptions are, are really important to identify and clarify. I think. Mm, um, yeah. let, let, let's do a little thought experiment here. If we if we knew that a group of extremists um, uh, in uh, any part of the world uh, more closely resembled rational actors than devoted actors. Um, and and no, having noted that you said that you know the, the devoted actor model is more of a depiction than a prediction, um, uh, but if we if we knew that different populations um, uh, bared stronger resemblance to sort of uh, different theoretical approaches, uh, what would our prognosis be in terms of uh, elaborating CVE policies? Hmm. Yeah, I don't like predicting violence of a population. <laughs> it goes against everything I stand for as a non-political scientist and an anthropologist instead. Oh, so let me put it in a different way. If, <laughs> yeah, if, if we were advising policymakers yeah. and, uh, and you know, uh, policymakers for whom, as, um, uh, as you noted in the comment uh, a moment ago, there is a big demand, a strong demand for CBE policy. Um, and uh, uh, our job is to, to give them a, um, uh, some advice on policy development. Um, and we knew that some actors in, in some groups uh, more strongly resemble a, a rational actors and, and others more strongly resemble devoted actors. Uh, how would our recommendations uh, be different for, for different kinds of uh, groups in that regard? It's an interesting question, and I'd like you to try and answer it in a moment because what I would say is that humans aren't rational I, I don't know where this idea came from I think there's been an awful lot of work in psychology to show that we act on emotions and rationalize in an ad hoc way post hoc sorry but right. we, we, we rationalize after the fact nobody is rational I'm not quite sure why we're so committed to this idea still um but yes, I do see the point that there are there are times when people are less emotional, um, and perhaps that means more rational um, on some kind of spectrum, I suppose. And yeah, when you're fully fused, you I mean, one of the features of being fully fused is that when your group is insulted or praised, you feel that personally. They they say that the borders between yourself and the group are porous you know, so that you you identify so strongly with the group that praise and insults are felt very personally. And, you know, I mean, the Pope kind of alluded to this after the Charlie Hebdo shooting, um, when he said, well, if somebody insults my mother, he can accept, he can expect a punch. I mean, yeah, the Guardian called that the wife beater's defense, you know, a verbal provocation 
um, um, excuses violent response. So I kind of wish he hadn't said it. But there is an intuitive feeling that you don't insult somebody's mother, right? Mm -hmm. We know that you feel that in a way that you don't feel other insults. You feel it very personally. Um, And so if people are at that point where uh, uh, an, an attack on on I don't know, a Sunni population is felt very personally by a Sunni halfway across the world who's never even set foot inside that country, um, then we are going to have to work on um, giving them a sense of alternative identities, that it's okay to be Sunni and British. Now, until the war on terror started, that wasn't even a question for most societies. It was just obvious for multicultural societies that you could be British and Muslim. Um, it's become more of um, an issue, um, partly because of Western policy, partly because of extremists' policies. You know, Al-Qaeda um, it, um, sets out to create that identity crisis and that 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 schism to say, no, you're either a good Muslim or you're a bad Muslim. There's no in-between. And if you are a, if you are British and committed to democracy, you are a bad Muslim. You know, they're, they're trying to create the, 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 the environment for, to, to be fully fused. So we need to, to, to try and show people how that's just not the case. It's very unusual that people throughout history only have one subsuming um, um, group, uh, and, and, unless it's your family, most people are um, 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 fully fused to their family. In my in my research, certainly. Um, um, does that explain anything? We need to work on yes. We need to work on groups basically, and try and diversify people's identities so that you can support a football group and a political party, and have commitment to your religious community and your school community, or whatever it might be. Right. I mean, um, uh, I think that really draws attention to the fact that, um, and this is where I was going with uh, my earlier question, is that um, really good CVE policy, or if CVE policy hopes to be effective, it uh, has an accurate uh, diagnosis of what the violent extremism problem is in any particular uh, location or for any particular group. Um, And to go back to that sort of rational actor versus devoted actor model, um, as we've progressed in uh, doing research in these fields, um, uh, you know, uh, we have made some progress, sure, uh, but we have uh, rather found that um, there's a lot of context specificity with regard to what leads to violent extremism problems in particular uh, locations. Um, And so achieving the kind of diagnosis um, with regard to violent extremism problems that can inform policy such that policy is, is uh, effective, um, even if it's perfectly implemented, right, um, which is a separate, a separate step, but um, uh, is, is really a challenging task and I think uh, a confounding task for CBE as a field. Yeah, and I would want to know why we were going that way. Why are we attempting mm. to address violent extremism in that very isolated way. As you say, it's very localised. I, I made it sound as though it was all answered in, in when, I, when I put forward the drivers. But of course, the marginalisation, injustice and all the rest of it, they are expressed very differently in different parts of the globe. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean... We have, what we haven't talked about is the evidence base, which I know you've worked on quite a lot. We don't know that this even works. And we do know that there have been backlash effects. We already mentioned the stigmatization of communities when, when we're looking at prevention. Um, but there's also a, a, a belief in things like communications campaigns that is entirely unearned. And I've challenged people on this, by the way. I've said, why are we even spending money on this? Um, and they've said, oh, it's a very easy thing for governments to spend money on. You know, communications campaigns are nicely bounded. There's a good product at the end that you can see, that you can judge. You spend a very definite, precise budget on it, and you there's a beginning, middle, and end. Um, it, it's a nice, safe way to spend money. Um, but nobody seems to care whether it works or not and that's what's frustrating me so much at the moment 
Oh, you're dead right about that. Um, the, the, you know, the strategic communications aspects or, or um, branch of, of CVE policy and practice make some very heroic assumptions uh, <laughs> about how people consume media uh, and about um, sort of how people consume media in, in terms of, um, you know, whether they get information through their phone or on WhatsApp through their mm. friends and, and so mm. from newspapers and so on and so on. Uh, let alone um, how people actually interpret messages um, uh, that, you know, perhaps with a little interrogation are quite clear that they're coming from uh, a certain kind of government-funded source. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I really um, am very sceptical uh, towards uh, those kinds of uh, strategic communications uh, aspects of, of CVE policy. Um, and, and you're absolutely right about the evidence base as well. I mean, I think I, I still think that um, uh, you know it's it's a standard talking point to say that we need to do more evaluations of, of CVE policies. But that's been a standard talking point for you know um, almost a full decade now. Um, you know, the the dilemmas of doing evaluation in this space are, are, are really well documented. Um, but I also think that we haven't tried hard enough um, to figure out whether this stuff really works. And part of that is because uh, I think policymakers have sort of um, mixed incentives here. If, um, if you do uh, have enough, set aside enough resources to fund a proper evaluation uh, and it comes back with a positive result, that is to say the program worked, well, then, you know, you're at risk of having your funding yanked for the next cycle. Um, if you come back with a negative result, you're sort of at a similar kind of yeah. risk. Um, and well, so it makes sense. Sorry, go ahead. But there are other problems as well. I think proper evaluation is very expensive. And when we talk, we haven't gone into the detail of CVE, but it covers everything. And some of these projects are really tiny. And some of the tiny projects are where I've seen the most hopeful experiments, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on, on community groups to do very specific things. How do you spend $50,000 on a proper evaluation if the grant was only 10 or 20 or 30,000 to begin with. So that there are drop, there are difficulties in evaluation and you do need expertise. You know, I've seen evaluations done extremely badly. Uh, and you're right, maybe we haven't tried hard enough. We just need to share our expertise. I wish that we could stand up much more and just share these things because, because we would also be sharing the tools which would make the very small organizations um much more able to do it themselves you know they wouldn't be having to hire consultants if they had all the all the means at their disposal so you're right in probably that we haven't we haven't quite tried hard enough to to make it a reality across the board but it is it is difficult mm. no, no abs absolutely um uh, and you know in in my previous comment i didn't want to um under um, estimate the work that has been done in this field. You know, there have been some meta-analyses of the, the evaluations that are on the public record. Um, I do think um, uh, that there has been some uh, learning in the field. As you mentioned the, the example of, of PREVENT um, and so changes that were implemented. Uh, some of those initial programs were indeed evaluated. Um, you know, it's also possible to sort of um, uh, zoom up uh, and take a broader perspective on the evolution of um, uh, violent extremism in the post 9-11 period um, and ask ourselves whether the efforts that we put in, whether a sort of hard power conventional counterterrorism approaches or more nuanced soft power CVE approaches um, have uh, impacted that mm. evolution of violent extremism. Um, or uh, in a way that sort of suppressed its overall level or, or just um, affected it and, and uh, impacted the way it sort of manifested over time. Um, it's, uh, uh, it was particularly discouraging a few years ago to be in the CVE space um, at a time when ISIS was in its ascendance um, and that sort of evolution of al-Qaeda into ISIS and, and so mm. forth uh, really seemed to underscore the fact that um, uh, the efforts that have been made on the counterterrorism CVE side um, had shaped the form of, of extremism, but without sort of reducing its overall level. Oh, how depressing. That I is. mean, I, I would say that it's very difficult to unpick the different 
the the different factors at play here. I mean, violent extremist groups can be extremely dynamic. In particular, I'm thinking of ISIS. They were so fast moving and they responded to global events and micro events extremely fast. And I would say that CVE efforts, even the ones that were specifically against them as a group, they just could not keep up. Um, And so it's, yes, they definitely used the the overbearing counterterrorism policies of the war on terror as recruitment strategies. They used instances of, um, you know, drone attacks that hit weddings and, and I can't, yeah, institutional kind of assumptions that Muslims were possibly terrorists across the West. They, they used events big and small to show that there was this you know global war against muslims you know that was their driving narrative um as a recruitment tool um it's not difficult to marshal that kind of evidence and our counterterrorism policy very very likely played into that uh but it's not the only thing that was going on you know the shia government in iraq was busy um um annoying let's put it lightly, the Sunni tribes in Iraq, that was far more relevant to the form of ISIS. The fact that there was a civil war going on in Syria was an opportunity for for ISI, the Islamic State in Iraq, to expand. That's why they controlled territory of, of around 12 million citizens, because of the chaos in Syria. You know, these groups have got very complex um, um, histories, and it it can't be all laid at our counter, our failures of counterterrorism. I don't think the um, uh, the capacity of uh, extremist groups to uh, exploit disorder to channel the the name of the uh, ICG report um, uh, that elaborated that argument is indeed very well documented. Um, in the 10 minutes or so that we've got left, I mean, I, I think we should pivot a little bit to, to talk about the future of violent extremism and, and CVE. Um, we're obviously uh, having this conversation uh, against the backdrop of a historically unprecedented global health pandemic. Um, uh, it's likely that, uh, uh, that the current crisis um, will affect um, uh, policy uh, in international relations, in a whole range of fields, uh, including on terrorism and violent extremism and, and our uh, responses to it. Uh, it's also the case that, that the sort of enormity of the current crisis is, is difficult to, to process. Um, but I'm certainly interested in hearing uh, your um, uh, formative thoughts uh, about how COVID-19 uh, impacts uh, violent extremism, violent extremists, uh, and then on the flip side, you know, our responses to them. Yeah, I mean, it's going. It's difficult to know exactly how this all plays out, isn't it? I mean, it's as you say, it's unprecedented. I, if we look at the the structural changes that are coming, you know, it, it seems clear we're going to have a global recession on a fairly terrifying scale, and that, of course, will feed into major issues in people's lives and. If I'd, I'd like to take an example here, just because I've seen some polls coming out of Jordan recently um, about how the government is tackling COVID-19 and how how they feel society is responding. Now, Jordan is a place which in normal times doesn't have an awful lot of trust in its government. You know, it is a highly polarised society along different lines, um, such as socioeconomic or geographic um, um, or urban rural, and there there are high levels of corruption um, in the country, uh, and these have been considered um, to be yeah they are a major grievance. They come up in every questionnaire I do. Um, but on top of that, the 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 economy is dreadful. It relies on foreign aid. It's running out of water. It's 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 it. it, it its welfare state is it, the public sector in general is far too big for its for its um for its GDP, um, and the the new prime minister tried to fix this with an increase in income tax, a tiny increase in in income tax, and there were riots on the street. 
he had to back down. Now, we fast forward to this particular, and, and Jordan reacted very quickly, by the way, they closed their borders completely on the 15th of March, and there was a total lockdown from the 21st. Um, and trust in the government has shot up. Social cohesion measures have improved. Now, I know this is early days. And when the economic situation starts to bite, uh, there might be all sorts of protests and unrest against the government. But right now, perhaps it is the case, maybe I'm being horribly (laughs) over-optimistic, but maybe something of this level actually might bring people together and increase social cohesion. And social cohesion really is the flip side of violent extremism. It's what melds society together in order to reject these outside influences. Yeah, I'm even unconvinced with that optimism <laughs> as I speak. But I would like it to be the case. <laughs> the um, uh, Yes, the, the term social cohesion is, is uh, in many ways a proxy for um, uh, what we're trying to achieve in, in advancing CBE. Mm-hmm. Um, I admire your elaboration <laughs> of a silver lining there. Um, I, I mean, I think... Yet, are you? Well, um, it's hard to be optimistic in, in the current moment, uh, especially um, from the uh, watching these developments play out within the United States um, and knowing how um, uh, inadequate, to put it very gently, the, the current administration is in terms of its response, how consumed... Uh, the U.S. will be domestically, therefore the absence of leadership, um, knowing that the COVID-19 crisis is is very likely to be devastating in the global south um, and with all the negative uh, uh, consequences for conflict and um, uh, human rights, rule of law, uh, and so on and so on. Um, but it does challenge us, I think, for you know, for those of us within the CVE space uh, or within the CVE industry, if if, um, if we put our hands up to that, um, to think about the horizontal linkages between our responses to violent extremism and our responses to other forms of, of violence and conflict. Um, mm. uh, if we accept that uh, you know um, bad things, violence and conflict, tend to have fairly similar kinds of origins, um, then it behooves us, I think, to, to think about how our responses, especially in the current context, um, can help to sort of build something like resilience or um, uh, uh, can, can rebuild societies towards uh, uh, and preserve some kind of uh, social cohesion, um, given the, the difficult times that are no doubt coming, coming around the corner. Um, yes. I, I, w- I would say that crisis brings people together um although obviously there are different behaviors that are motivated by deep fear and uncertainty that that are not going to lead to resilience within the community i think it is the longer term that's far more worrying though um because when things aren't in a crisis and you're planning for much longer term you're not just kind of getting through this next lockdown phase um then you might be able to see that the world as you know it the future that you'd planned has entirely evaporated um and that is where the governments are going to have to face civil unrest at the best now around the world governments are going to react very differently to that of course and there might It might be taken as an excuse for more oppressive measures by already totalitarian regimes. Um, So the scope to increase the drivers of radicalization is huge. But I wonder what can be done um, to both avoid that and also get through this relatively unscathed. Um, In the absolute fact that spending, of course, is going to be reduced in a global recession, countries won't be making such huge um, donations to the UN in these times. And the UN is one of the um, major givers of of funding in this area in both social cohesion and CVE. Um, And so I'm not sure where that leaves the field of CVE, um, but I would say it's it's about to be vastly reduced. Um, Whether that makes much of a difference to the violent extremist groups, (laughs) I am less convinced. On that note, let me step in and say thank you so much to 
Peter Romaniuk and Lydia Wilson for this fascinating discussion of countering violent extremism and its uh, contribution to uh, limiting, reducing such behavior uh, and for their thoughts about where this all might go in the current context. This is John Torpy from the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City of University of New York uh, saying, see you next time on International Horizons. Thank you so much.